anyone who tries to lure you into evangelical Christianity does not want you to like yourself. They want you to see yourself as something flawed and broken and dirty and in need of fixing. And whether it's televangelists or secular self-help gurus, the goal is the same. Hook you, reel you in, and keep you dependent. Joel Osteen's messaging taps into every conceivable avenue of self-help. Productivity, time management, finances, relationships, and the running theme through all of it is that you're not good enough. He's every bit the sideshow charlatan that all of them are. He's just figured out a way to tap into a slightly more secular, slightly smarter, and slightly higher income bracket than average. The whole idea of self-help and self-improvement is that it improves ourselves. We don't get into making changes in our life to make other people happy. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. So what kind of Margaret Atwood dystopia did I wake <laughs> up to last week? Uh, I, I'm beside myself right. with this mess. And just so everyone's aware, the only reason that you didn't hear anything about this last week is because by the time the shit hit the fan, we had already done last week's show. We had promoted this week's show what yeah. we were going to talk about, what we were going to do. And we're still going to talk about Joel Osteen a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But I really thought that this was a lot more important, and I thought that it would be irresponsible of us to not say something about it. Right. So I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And with as little preamble as I can put into this, we're going to get right into our Christians Behaving Badly segment, more like Christian-influenced legislators behaving yes. badly because of this clusterfuck that's going uh. on in Texas over abortion and just the sheer diabolical nature of it. Yeah. It's setting things up that I don't even want to think about yeah, unless somebody it's, intervenes. It's very scary. So I'm going to let you carry the conversation okay. and we're going to talk about this a little bit. Yeah. First thing I want to do is stress that this is what happens when theocracy wins. Oh, yeah. This is what happens when religion informs your politics and when you bring religions into the secular space of government. Church and state should be permanently separated. And according to the Constitution, they it, are. Right. But when you've got a government, we same thing I said just a few weeks ago, when you've got a government that is full of people who believe the way these people believe, right. you will never have that separation. Until there's some very, very pointedly drawn out legislation right. that says you cannot bring these aspects of your personal beliefs and personal morals and personal ethics into this space. Right. I think there's a big hole in our legal system that just allows this sort of thing to perpetuate. And we're starting to see just precisely how bad it can get. Yeah. So let's get into it. Here's yes, a quote. Let's. Uh, from a very good AP News article about the new law in Texas, SB 8. The nation's highest court has allowed a Texas law banning most abortions to remain in effect, marking a turning point 
for abortion opponents who have been fighting to implement stronger restrictions for nearly a decade. And I want to interject something sure. there. The nation's highest court. We don't have a Supreme Court right, right now. No. Because nothing, nothing that this diabolical group of people, and I know we've got a few Democrats that still think the way we do, yeah. vote the way that we want them to. So I don't want I don't want to portray them as this gang that's out to get America. But there's nothing judicial about the decisions that are being made. The majority on the Supreme Court, of course, is Republican. And mm -hmm. they are doing everything that they can to appease the evangelicals. Right. Because several of them are. Well and that's problematic right there. And the the other thing is that elections matter. Mm -hmm. Because 45 got in, he was able to give them three. Yes. And that's problematic, especially when one considers that he lost the popular vote by over three million votes. The people didn't want him, and the people didn't want those justices, and the people do not want this. No. And guess what? The people are starting to speak up. Yeah. Oh, that they're definitely starting. Um, the Texas law pegged a fetal heartbeat bill, bans abortions at the point of the first detectable heartbeat. Which isn't even a fucking heartbeat. No, it's not a thing. This could happen around six weeks into pregnancy, although that time frame isn't specified in the measure. Medical experts say the heart doesn't begin to form until the fetus is at least nine weeks old, and they decry efforts to promote abortion bans by relying on medical inaccuracies. And this doesn't surprise me in the least. It also doesn't surprise me that they were able to get a majority of the Supreme Court to agree with them. Because when your brain is addled in the Kool-Aid, I don't care what position you hold. I don't care how important you are. This shit makes you stupid. Yeah. And the notion of... A six-week fetus. Is it even a fetus at six weeks? Yes, it is. Okay. But the notion of a fetus having a heartbeat at six weeks is a scientific impossibility. Right. And yet the Supreme Court doesn't fucking care. No. Because as far as their God is concerned, that's a baby. Yeah. Well, let's be clear. The Supreme Court didn't hear evidence. They just didn't hold it up while it was being debated. They chose not right. to hear it. They, they chose, chose... Yeah. They chose basically uh, when something's challenged in lower courts that something might be, you know, unconstitutional, sometimes they'll put a hold on that law and it will not go into effect until the Supreme Court makes a decision. They decided not to do that right. this time. And... I mean, what's the difference between that? Well, there, there is a difference. There's I'm gonna, a difference. I'm going to say there is a difference between them making a decision and doing what they did. Right. But their refusal to mm -hmm. make a decision is what is allowing this to go forward. And that is every bit as problematic because if they didn't stand in the way of it, then they're also not likely to hear the case if it's brought before them. They're not likely to hear it. Right. So... That's problematic also. Oh, definitely. At least 13 other states with Republican-dominated legislatures have adopted similar bans, although courts have blocked them all from being implemented. 
Democrats call the new Texas law an unconstitutional assault on women's health. And they're being very polite. Yes, they are. And I really wish they would stop being polite and start being a little more forceful. Just a little bit more aggressive would be nice. It's not an unconstitutional assault on women's health. It goes so far beyond that. It does. It's trying to bring the role of women in society back to biblical times. Yeah. Back to the days when it was okay to rape a woman. But if you got caught, you actually had to buy her from her father and marry her. Yeah, that's I mean, wonderful. I'm wondering when Texas is going to try to rip ill women's suffrage. I mean, when, where does it end? I know. And the simple notion of strangers telling women what they can do about an unwanted pregnancy is bullshit. Oh, and I know. it is not constitutional. Yeah. I don't give a fuck what these idiots on the Supreme Court have to say. Yeah. This so-called heartbeat bill bans abortions after six weeks or what abortion opponents say is a detectable heartbeat. Since the vast majority of women don't even realize they are pregnant until well after that, it effectively bans abortion in the state of Texas. Abortion clinics are already starting to shut down. Because why do they need to be there? Yeah. They're not going to be able to help anyone. No, and the punishments are egregious. Oh, yeah. No, no, we're going to get into that. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. We're talking George Orwell 1984 kind of shit. Yeah. Even if you do know you're pregnant, the doctors generally consider you four weeks pregnant when you've missed your first period, which would give you two weeks to figure out where, how, and when to get your abortion. The woman in question would also have to pay for it. Mm hmm. Of course. Right. And worse. What makes the Texas law different is its unusual enforcement scheme. <laughs> unusual is one way of putting it. Yeah. Rather than have officials responsible for enforcing the law, and worse, what makes the Texas law different is its unusual enforcement scheme. Rather than have officials responsible for enforcing the law, private citizens are authorized to sue abortion providers and anyone involved in facilitating abortions. Among other situations, that would include anyone who drives a woman to a clinic to get an abortion. Under the law, anyone who successfully sues another person would be entitled to at least $10,000. It's like they're making a game show out of it. I know. This is the single most batshit thing that I have ever seen my country do. And all I can say is, I'm glad I'm in Massachusetts. Yes. I'm glad I'm nowhere near this fucking state right now. Oh, I know. I know. The litigant would also regain their court costs if they win. Their targets, however, get nothing and may be sued again in the future. This includes not only doctors, but the driver who transported the woman to get her abortion, any health care workers who aided her, and the hotel if a woman goes out of state that housed her. That's so fucking batshit. So if she takes an Uber yeah. to an abortion clinic, mm-hmm. the Uber driver can be sued yes. because she gets an abortion. Let's just think about the implications yeah. of this. What was the next one? Any healthcare workers who aided her. So if someone takes her blood pressure yes. at one of these facilities, they can be sued. Mm-hmm. If someone takes her temperature, they can be sued. Yeah. If someone gives her a gown to put on, they can be sued. Yeah. And the hotel, if the woman goes out of state that housed her, so now they're going to sue hotels out of state yeah. if this woman goes someplace else to have be. the abortion. So now they're trying to hold her captive yes. in Texas. 
They're trying yeah. to hold her captive so she can't do this anywhere. Right. If she's a Texas resident, then she cannot have an abortion right. anywhere. I'll get to that in a minute. Abortion rights advocates say it will force many women to travel out of state for abortions if they can afford to do so, and also navigate issues including childcare and taking time off work. The Guttmacher Institute, a research organization that supports abortion rights, says if legal abortion care in Texas shuts down, the average one-way driving distance to an abortion clinic for Texans would increase from 12 miles to 248 miles. Trying to do the math in my head, and I'm terrible at math, but isn't that about 20 times the distance? About, at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that's about 20 times the distance they would have to travel. And that's going to happen if they have a car to begin with. Yeah. If they have a reliable car that will go that kind of a distance without any problems. Right. Or, you know, then we're back to the whole Uber idea. Right. Paying somebody to drive you there. Uber and Lyft, uh, the companies have said that they are going to pay any legal fees that are incurred as a result of this law. Well, that's good. That's good, but I'm like, still. You know, as much as I dislike Uber as a company, they have actually stepped up quite a bit in the last couple of years. Yeah. I'll give them that. I'm still not crazy about a lot of the things that I know about them and a lot of the things that I've heard. And the way that they handle certain aspects of their business, I don't like it very much. Mm -hmm. But last year, they were encouraging people to stay home and not use their service. That was one thing that I thought was kind of admirable. And this actually does, I'm, I do have to give them props for it. There, yeah. there are still problems there, but I got to give them props for that. And also, there are only about eight abortion clinics in surrounding states. Right. Eight. So because that's it's not in the very south. much because it's in the south. And all of the surrounding states are getting laws like these on the books. Mm-hmm. They are trying. I know of a few people that live in the south, one of whom had to have an abortion two years ago now. Mm-hmm. And it was hell on wheels oh, I'm for her sure. to find a place that would do it. Yeah. And when she finally found a place, it was not near home. Yeah. Not even remotely. She had to travel a good distance for it then in a state where it was legal, but where most communities would not allow them in. That's the problem. Yeah. It's kind of like when medical marijuana was a new thing or even when uh, recreational marijuana became a new thing here. Right. There were a lot of cities and towns that spoke up and said, yeah, we don't want it here. Well, it's the same thing with this. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of states in the South, there are a lot of locales that will not allow them because the voters said no. Right. So that's a huge problem all over the South. And this is just making it exponentially worse. Oh, yeah. So what does this mean for women when 85% of all abortions would be banned? It depends on many things. One thing is for certain. Wealthy white men's mistresses and rich white women, they can always get their abortion. They can always get whatever the fuck they want. That's the way that our our society works. And in my opinion, that's the worst part of it because that tells me that this has nothing to do with any kind of religious conviction. It has to do with who makes the most money Mm -hmm. and who has the privilege of having it. Yeah. That's the worst part of this whole thing is that it goes right back to the notion of white privilege. But in this instance, it makes it even worse because it's not just a matter of white privilege. It's a matter of rich white privilege. Yes. And that to me is very problematic. But poor women, 
especially single women, women who have been victims of rape or incest, no exception for that, well, a lot of them are going to have to find other ways of getting the job done. For many women who work and have other children, finding a safe and legal abortion might mean going out of state, staying in a hotel room, finding childcare and finding time off work. And if you can't pay for all that, plus the abortion, the phrase back alley abortion is going to come back with a vengeance. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Women are going to die. Yes. I mean. Yeah. It's going to go underground in a hurry. I'm just thinking about how if someone is injured in a botched abortion, yeah. um, what's the likelihood that they're going to seek medical help right. knowing full well that someone's going to turn around or many someone's because it doesn't seem like there are any limits placed on no. this. As many fingers as can be pointed at her will be pointed at her and she'll be sued up one end and down the other. Mm. And I mean, if it was me... I probably wouldn't be thinking first and foremost of heading to the ER if I had a botched abortion. Oh, yeah. So the problems with this are they're too numerous to get into in a single episode. Right. And I honestly don't think that anyone involved in this decision was thinking about this like at all, especially this particular aspect of it. Yeah. You talk about being pro-life. What about the life of this woman who is now seeking these services from unlicensed practitioners right and the consequences that can arise from that are they thinking about it and if they are do they care because if you're pro-life then you need to be pro everybody's life right not just this baby that you want to force into existence and forget about yeah they don't want to pay for food stamps or child care or anything for babies of you know low-income women who might not have a spouse, who might just be all alone. Mm -hmm. You know, how are they going to live? It's crazy. Do they care? Yeah. That's the thing. I know. Because no one that I know who says they're pro-life or pro-life, they're all pro-birth and fuck it after that. That's just the way that they think. Whether they want to admit it or not, that is how they think. So there is no contingency plan here. There's no concern being given here toward the life of the woman seeking the abortion. Okay. There's absolutely nothing in their contingency plan about her life. So if there's no contingency for her life, how on earth can you sit there and call yourself pro-life? Right. Because all you really are at that point is pro-controlling women. And that's it. You're not pro-life. You you don't give two shits about the life of that kid once it's born. You just want it to be born because it's something that you can control. That is not being pro-life by any definition. And I just wanted to read this um, from, this is from another AP article. Late into the night, the Tuesday before the ban took effect, clinics in Texas were filled with patients, said Amy Hagstrom Miller, CEO of Whole Women's Health, which has four abortion clinics in Texas. 27 women were still in the waiting room after 10 p.m. at one clinic leaving doctors crying and scrambling over whether they would be able to see all of them in time. The last abortion at one of her clinics finished at 11.56 p.m. in Fort Worth, where Hagstrom Miller said anti-abortion activists outside shined bright lights in the parking lot looking for wrongdoing and twice called the police. This morning, I woke up feeling deep sadness. 
I'm worried. I'm numb, she said. And you ought to because your state government just turned your entire populace into bounty hunters. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. They were out there looking for someone who they can sue and get their cash grab. And no, that just, what they are doing here, they, they don't understand. I really honestly do not think that the people that are making these decisions understand what it is that they're buying here. Right. This is black mirror shit yeah. right here. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. The things that can result from this and the lengths that some people will go to to get that money. There are people right now in Texas figuring out how they can make a livelihood out of this. Yes. How oh, yes. they can make a livelihood out of hunting women mm-hmm. who are trying to do something which in most cases is positive for them, their lives, their bodies. And with all due respect, a lot of these women who have abortions are having them because they understand their own limitations in terms of their ability to parent, the number of kids they already have. They're making intelligent decisions about what they do with their bodies. And now they have an entire state population Mm -hmm. that they have to look over their shoulder for. Yeah. If they step close to a facility that provides these services, because someone is going to be watching them Mm -hmm. and looking to take vengeance on them for having an abortion. Yes. And the amount of fraud that could be accomplished because of this law, because there's no other law enforcement. It's just them. It's just, it's so odd. This whole thing is so odd. It's like, yeah, we're going to make this law, but we're not going to enforce it. You are. It's so crazy. What? I What? Yeah. Well, the Justice Department of the United States is going to sue Texas over it. Good. Um, the lawsuit says the state enacted the law in open defiance of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, you think? Yeah. The act is clearly unconstitutional under longstanding Supreme Court precedent, Attorney General Merrick Garland said during a news conference on Thursday afternoon. These precedents hold, in the words of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that regardless of whether exceptions are made for particular circumstances, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. So all that has to happen here is for someone to bring a case that counters that right. and have them rule in favor of the plaintiffs in that case. Right. And all of that just goes bye-bye. You see how pointless it is? This is not justice. These people are not justices by any stretch of the imagination. If they either A, stand behind this, or B, enact legislation that defies what you just read. Yeah. They're not justices because that is not just. And that is their job. Their job is to uphold the law, not rewrite it in a way that their God will be happy with. Right. But that's precisely what they're doing. And that's precisely what they will continue to do if they're allowed. Yeah. And that's why I keep saying it over and over and over again. People, your vote matters. Yes. It matters. And, you know, I understand what happened in 2016. And I understand just how shitty that whole thing was. But please don't give up hope in the system because it failed you once. Okay. We still have the power 
in this country to have a government that is for the people of the people and by the people. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take the people who think rationally to get off their asses and get to those fucking voting booths. Yeah. And I'm talking not just for presidential elections. I'm talking about state elections. I'm talking about local elections. Yes. Because it starts at the local level. It does. And we need to have reason and we need to have logic and order and justice in our government. And if those of us who believe that just sit on our asses and wait to see what happens, well, guess what? This is what happens. Yeah. Get off your ass and vote. And if you live in Texas, do whatever you need to do to vote out the miscreants who made this a reality right. and send a message that it will not be tolerated and put people in those positions who will reverse this. Because I'd like to think that the DOJ lawsuit will have some effect on this, but I am not hopeful. Yeah. What it's going to take is getting the assholes who put the state of Texas in this mess out of there and put in people who can unshitty this situation pronto. Yeah. That's the only thing that we have to go by right now because we cannot, listen to me, listen to me, we cannot trust the Supreme Court. No. We cannot trust the Supreme Court. All we have is us. And we need to use our voices, period. And on that happy note, I feel so odd segueing into our Patreon is at, but... <laughs> It's just, this is where we're at. This is where we're at in the, in the episode. And maybe talking about this for a minute will help me to calm down a little so that we can get into the main part of our show tonight. We went a little bit longer than we normally do with this segment, and I think that it was necessary. But right now, when you're talking about people using their voices, well, that's what we are doing here. And that is what we want to continue to do. And one thing that they haven't taken away from us yet is our freedom of speech, because no one's going to show up at my door tomorrow and throw me in jail because I say, fuck the Supreme Court. At least we still have that. Yeah. And along those lines, what we're doing here, I believe it, it may not make a difference on a national level, but for one or two people along the way who hear something that I have to say and say, oh my goodness, that's me. And it all just starts to click with them and the process starts of them starting to get and stay unbound. You see, that's what we're here for. I'm not here to become a celebrity or grow this thing into the juggernaut that some podcasts grow into. But I know that there are people out there that need this messaging, that they need to hear this message conveyed this way. And that's why we're here, because I do believe that we bring a unique voice to this particular subject. And if you agree, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. $5 a month is where it starts. And for just over a buck an episode, you can help people start getting and staying unbound. Because the more we're able to do with this show, the more people are going to hear it and the more of an impact the messaging is going to have. If you know someone who needs to hear what we have to say, by all means, please tell them about us this week. Help us out also with your likes, shares, five-star ratings, reviews, all the things that make podcasts grow. If you don't have the money to send, then at least take a little bit of proactive action and let people know that we're out here. And at the end of the day, I just want people to hear. I just want people to hear this and say I changed a few lives along the way. And that right there is my motivation. 
I'm not really interested in making money off of this. I'm just interested in making it better. And you can help with that. And we hope that you'll consider it. And with that, let's dive right into our main topic. So last week, I said that we were going to continue the conversation on televangelists by talking about Joel Osteen in particular. Now, I didn't really intend to do an entire episode on Joel Osteen, more on the way that he frames what he does. And he's not even unique in the world of televangelists. There are others that actually take the same kind of tack that he does. But he does have a very unique way of doing this. And we're going to kind of analyze his way of doing this just a little bit as we go along. So why did it feel like Joel Osteen just appeared out of nowhere somewhere in the early 2000s? Well, because he basically did. The name Lakewood Church was already well known in parts of Texas and in other parts of the country since Joel Osteen's father was in the televangelism game by 1981. But it was a small name in comparison to a lot of others like Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Peter Popoff, and more. And yes, that was his actual name, Peter Popoff. <laughs> that that just, these days, it creates quite a colorful visual inside my head. Um, now, I recall seeing Lakewood Church on TV in New York, so they were making the rounds for sure. It wasn't all just local, regional stuff. It's just that it was sandwiched in with all the rest of the religious programming that I had this perverse interest in as a child. Don't ask me why, but (laughs) I had interest in shows like This is the Life and Insight and Christopher Closeup. You remember these shows? They were all on like Sunday mornings and they were all sponsored by various mainline Protestant denominations. For whatever reason, I latched on to a lot of these. And I absolutely remember this being in the mix somewhere. As for Joel Osteen, this motherfucker has his own entry in Encyclopedia Britannica. (laughs) And I'll be drawing a few comments from the information on his page going forward. I'm going to set up what really is a perfect storm that merged the world of televangelism with the world of self-help. Because Mm -hmm. that really is his angle. And there are other televangelists that are kind of following on his heels. Why? Because it works. And we're going to get into that in a minute too. But to be clear, John Osteen was a pastor first. He wasn't the definition of the televangelist grifter that I gave last week or that we see today. He was not a Kenneth Copeland or a Creflo Dollar or Mm. one of these. In televangelist terms, he had far less sinister motives than a lot of the others. He wanted to spread the gospel. That was his motivation. And he looked at TV as a way of reaching more people with it. Sure, he asked for money quite a bit, but I mean, what he was doing was in fact expensive. And he actually took that money to grow his ministry, both on TV and in the local church and grow. They did. Mm. They grew pretty big. So what went wrong? What created this monster that we call Joel Osteen? It sounds like, at least in purely evangelical terms, that Joel had a good mentor. His dad took the gospel seriously. He wasn't overly aggressive when it came to his TV ministry, and he was generally frugal with the way the money got spent. That is to say that he seemed to have a cap on what he wanted to spend on specific things. I can only imagine that Joel always had it in the back of his head that what his dad was doing was a cash cow that wasn't being adequately tapped. He didn't think like a minister. He thought like a marketer. And if he was paying attention to some of the key players at the time, like Kenneth Copeland, 
Frederick Casey Price and others, and I'm sure he was. He probably spent the bulk of the 80s and 90s learning from some of the masters of the grift. I'm sure he also saw a lot of the prayer requests that came through his ministry and probably paid attention to TV preachers like Gene Scott and Robert Tilton, who routinely read people's actual prayer requests over the air. One thing that seemed to be a running theme, even over the din of requests for things like personal healing, were requests that revolved around self-improvement. I remember this vividly, especially Gene Scott. I watched more of him than I ever wanted to, only because we had friends that were kind of, I won't call them fans. I think that they laughed at him more than they laughed with him. Mm. But I remember being introduced to this guy while we were in college. And he actually did buy airtime on a couple of the local Philly stations. So I got to see him. And there were always segments where they would read off various prayer requests. And a lot of times they were something real basic, like so-and-so in San Bernardino needs a touch whatever that means. But sometimes they got more specific. And a lot of times they did gravitate into the area of self-help. So I guarantee you that guys like Joel Osteen were paying attention to stuff like that. So yeah, there were requests for people who were trying hard to lose weight. There were people in abusive relationships. And of course, they weren't praying to get out. They were offering prayers for their spouses. You know, just the most unproductive thing that you can possibly do. There were people who felt like they lacked direction in life. These are all things that predatory self-helpers will zero in on and use it to sell books and other things, basically. Then something happened that would change the way Lakewood did things forever. In 1999, Lakewood reached a turning point. John Olstein died and Joel took over as head pastor. Here's a little direct quote from the Britannica article. Under his leadership, and that's Joel Osteen, Lakewood soon became one of the largest and fastest growing congregations in the U.S. He rapidly expanded the church's media presence by purchasing advertisements on billboards and in other venues, doubling the church's budget for television airtime, negotiating with different networks for optimal time slots, and targeting the largest media markets. You see? Very, very smart marketer. He knew a lot about marketing when he started as the senior pastor of this church. He probably had certain things planned and possibly in motion before dad died. Yeah. I get the impression that he had other motives. Well, I know that he had other motives than his father did, but he couldn't do anything about it until dad was gone. Kind of like Michael Corleone <laughs> taking care of the business that he wanted to take care of after his father died. Anyone familiar with The Godfather gets that reference. And there we go back to the concept of the Christian mafia. Mm. Um, but in 1999, when that shift took place, Joel Osteen took over the church and it was time to let the marketer out to play. What did he do? Immediately, immediately. He expanded the church's media presence. He expanded the advertising budget. He was spending twice what dad was on advertising. He was advertising in more places. He fought to get airtime when he knew that his target demo was likely to be watching, and he began inserting into the biggest and most visible media markets, which is usually where most of the money is going to come from as well, because the bigger markets are metropolitan areas, places with dense populations where you can reach a lot of people at one time. It's just smart marketing. And just another quote from the Britannica article, 
Within a few years, his weekly television broadcast reached households in more than 100 countries and became the top-rated inspirational program on the air. His 2004 book, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential, was a bestseller. Now, let me ask you something. Just out of idle curiosity, I want to know if you picked up on this or not, listener. What is missing from the title of that book? Well, to answer the question, let's look at a couple of titles of books by Billy Graham. We have titles like Peace with God, How to Be Born Again, Angels, God's Secret Agents. That's Billy Graham. How about Kenneth Copeland, Pursuit of His Presence, Prayer, Your Foundation for Success, and the Force of Faith. And this is one of the biggest grifters and very definitely non-Christian ones out there. Mm. Um, and here are some books by Benny Hinn. Prayer That Gets Results. Going deeper with the Holy Spirit. Let's not even get into the visual that that creates. And He Touched Me, nor that one. Okay. Mm. Um, but those are three books by Benny Hinn. Here are some books by Joel Osteen. Become a Better You. Think better, live better. It's your time. Starting your best life now. Break out five keys to go beyond your barriers and live an extraordinary life. And again, I'm going to ask you, what is missing in the titles of those books versus the ones from other televangelists? Well, there's no Jesus. There's no faith. There's no spirituality. It's conspicuously secular in its presentation, and it targets a specific demo outside the confines of word faith heresy. Mm. That's what the difference is. He's not talking about God in any of the titles of his books. Now, the others that I mentioned, along with a plethora of other televangelists, use the same kinds of titles alongside the ones that I read. So they're not all hyper-spiritual, God, Jesus, everything. There are plenty of them out there that have the same kind of tone and messaging as the titles to these books. What makes Joel Osteen unique is that none of his books have any kind of mention of God, Jesus, or any kind of spirituality in their title. And this is actually rather brilliant marketing because even though all the other authors I've mentioned have similar self-help kinds of themes in some of their books, when compared side by side, you know what the others are selling. Joel Osteen took Prosperity Doctrine and packaged it in a way that would appeal to the masses. His book titles don't mention God or faith directly at all. I scrolled through several pages on Barnes & Noble, saw every iteration of every one of his books, and couldn't find one that just laid it out there. And in his books, he portrays God as more of a life coach than a heavenly father, which makes sense. In our episode about the Word Faith Movement, we talked about how Word Faith Doctrine actually suggests that we can control God. If that's true, we should also be able to fit God into any mold we want. Don't want him to be a father? Fine. Let's make him a mentor and a life coach. It's all good. I don't know if Joel Osteen ever tried out any other niches, but by the time he achieved international status, he had already figured out that self-help was a huge market. Some bookstores even put his books in their self-help sections as opposed to spirituality and faith, or they would put them in both. And Joel Osteen knew and knows that the vast majority of people who read his books are likely to be less devout, but still believe in God. Just ask any Christian who only goes to church on Christmas how that works. There are tons of non-religious people out there who are more than willing to defer some of their problems, conflicts, and defects of character to a higher power, 
And that is how Joel Osteen frames any and all messaging about God. He speaks of God in very AA terms. He's there to help. He wants you to live your best life, and he's willing to help you do it through me. You see, that's the, that's the kicker right there. And keeping up with all the people who, who need help is difficult, and I need money to keep doing it. Lots and lots of money. So he gets money. He gets it from book sales. He then appeals for money as part of his TV ministry. He also saps insane amounts of nothing but tithe money before ever taking his marketing plan outside the walls of Lakewood. Joel Osteen's great-grandchildren could retire on the revenues from tithes and offerings that the church brings in alone. But there really is no such thing as enough when it comes to money, hmm. especially once you have a little. And Joel saw the dollar signs way before he inherited that pulpit. The instant he did, he started testing out what he learned, and surprise, it worked. For a while, it seemed like he was the only one I ever saw on TV. He bought up insane amounts of airtime. On the on-screen cable guide, you could see his name somewhere pretty much around the clock. He was present. He spent a lot of money for that level of presence and made and continues to make a shit ton more. His messaging never changes. His delivery never changes. His body language never changes. His intonations and inflections never change. And if I didn't know any better, I'd swear he'd been surgically altered to always wear that vacant, plastic, disassociated smile that he never, ever, ever lets rest. Every last one of those things are deliberate. Some preachers on TV and otherwise spend years analyzing how people respond to everything from their wardrobe to the pacing of their sermons to how they move about the platform, and some of them don't even see the need to hide it. Eastman Curtis even told us during that retreat that his wife was his most valuable asset in reading people and would give him clues as to when to slow down, when to speed up, when to walk away from the platform, you name it. She had a sign for nearly everything he did. And if you watch Joel Osteen carefully, you'll pick up on a bunch of patterns, some of which are used by hypnotists, mentalists, and illusionists to grab your attention and keep it where they want it. In other words, he's every bit the sideshow charlatan that all of them are. He's just figured out a way to tap into a slightly more secular, slightly smarter, and slightly higher income bracket than average. Because if people have more, they can give more. And at that point, you need fewer people to fund your new jet. And you get it faster. Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar have no trouble amassing all the things they want. But I just get the feeling that even if he is slightly less braggadocious about what he does, or what he has, Osteen is doing every bit as well as any other televangelist, and probably better, probably considerably better, because he has learned how to take his messaging into places that the others have flat out not learned to tap. Not that they need to. They all have their niches and unique audiences. But when I think of secularization as a concept, it's an ironically toxic one when it comes to its integration into televangelism. Because in this instance, the higher power messaging is waiting just around the corner like a thug with a brick. And just when you thought it was safe to take this guy's advice, bam, it's all about God. And now you need me to teach you how to make him give you what you want. So send me money if you want to learn more. Now, there are others like him too, like Nicholas Vujicic. That is the way that he pronounces his name, I'm pretty sure. He was the first one that came to mind, and I even got lured in by his messaging. 
he really is a powerful motivational speaker. And I loved everything that he was saying up to a point. The first time I saw a video with him, I sat there thinking to myself, you know, I could really get behind this guy. And then, bam, there it was, the God brick. I dodged it, of course, but still. Now, for those who don't know, Nicholas Vujicic is an Australian-American Christian evangelist and motivational speaker born with Tetra Amelia syndrome, a rare disorder characterized by the absence of arms and legs. So he's got his thing right there. He's unique. He has a unique look and a unique presence, and he has an incredible magnetism. And everything that he says up to a point makes good and perfect sense. It's logical, it's reasoned, it's rational, and then bam. All of a sudden, anything good that could possibly come out of anything that he has to say gets devoured in the God messaging. And for a lot of people, by the time they get around to recognizing what it is that they're hearing from him, it's too late. Some of them are already too impressed by his delivery to just dismiss him based on the fact that now we know that he's talking about spirituality. And that is altogether on purpose because he's not preaching. He's not trying to preach to the choir. He's trying to preach to the people who are out on the streets. And that's how he does it. He starts with the self-help angle and then steers it right into theism. Then that's how he gets you. That's how anyone who does televangelism this way gets you. And Osteen's plan worked. Everything that he was trying to accomplish, he accomplished in record time. He had his ducks in a row when he inherited that pulpit. In just six years, here is what he managed to do. Quote, in 2005, Osteen conducted a 15-city U.S. tour, preaching to large crowds at virtually every stop. That year, Lakewood opened a new 16,000-seat megachurch in Houston's Compact Center, a former basketball and hockey arena. Weekly attendance at Lakewood rose from 6,000 in 1999 to more than 50,000 by 2016. In addition, by 2018, the televised services attracted an estimated 10 million viewers weekly. During this time, he also published a number of books. So let's look at those numbers. I'm going to get into this in just a minute, but I just want you to bookmark this. 16,000 seats, 50,000 in attendance every single Sunday. How does he do it? They currently offer four English language services and two Spanish language services per week with an average weekly attendance of 52,800. One thing that I found interesting there was that when I look at the numbers in 2016, they were around 50,000. In 2021, it's 52,800. That's not a lot of growth in the last five years. So bookmark that too and understand that it just goes to prove what I've said before on the show. Things are starting to wind down for evangelicalism. And with it is going every batshit niche doctrine that's out there. So it doesn't surprise me that things are slowing down. But you know what? He's still making plenty of bank. I mean, he doesn't need to grow this thing any bigger. When I look at those numbers, I do find it at least a little encouraging because that's not a whole hell of a lot of growth in five years, considering what he was able to accomplish in his first five years. I feel like if he wanted to, he should be able to keep up that momentum unless something was happening in the cultural zeitgeist that was keeping it from happening. So I'd like to think that we're still moving in a a good direction with that. 
They are losing traction, people. They're losing it everywhere. Be encouraged. It is happening. Still, Lakewood is currently the second highest attended church in the United States, second only to Life Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, with senior pastor Craig Groeschel, whom I will not even pretend to be familiar with, oddly enough. But his is the biggest. He's not, I may not know who he is because he may not be a televangelist. He mm. may just be a mega church pastor. I, right. I thought they were all televangelists, but I could be wrong because yeah. I never heard of this guy before I started doing research for this episode. Now let's look at why all this works so well. Let's zero in on the psychology of this brand of televangelism. It's not just for brain-addled evangelicals who are out of touch with reality. Some of them are very in touch with their realities. They worry. They worry about everything from their finances to their appearances to the quality of their relationships and much, much, much more. And this slant to televangelism is designed to lure these people, predominantly women, into the messaging. And why not? Women's magazines prey on female insecurities from the time they're preteens. Televangelists who tap into this niche keep the messaging more gender neutral, but women in particular get lured in by this kind of messaging. Why? Because here's a man, it's usually a man, pointing out those insecurities and offering solutions. Not just advice, solutions. And that masculine authority translates well to a masculine God. And after a while, the line between the televangelist and God becomes blurred and devotion to one becomes devotion to the other. And that, dear friends, is when the money starts rolling in. They establish trust, they hit the pain points, then deliver the solution. It's marketing 101. That nets a little thing called gratitude on the part of the target demo. And that gratitude turns into trust, and that trust turns into donations, and those donations turn into 143 private flights to a fucking ski resort. Mm. And when you look at Joel Osteen, he has a visage about him that many people have noticed. It's clearly messianic in its appearance, and I remain convinced that he spent decades perfecting it and sustaining it, hours in the mirror spouting platitudes and keeping that jaw set just right. But in technology terms, it's the code that matters. Joel is just an intricate UI. He makes the coding look good and makes it very user-friendly. It's the makeup of the code that matters most, and that brings us to a conversation about self-help. When I was finally in a place where I was ready to lose weight, I started researching all the popular programs, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, Jenny Craig, you name it, I Googled it. But one thing that I found true of all of them was that none of them had any game plan when it came to teaching me how to eat better. I could eat their meals and lose weight, but what about when I started cooking for myself again? I was amazed that Weight Watchers offered things like ice cream pops and brownies. Excuse me, but isn't this how I got in trouble in the first place? I saw nothing that was designed to really regulate things like carb intake. They reduced the sugar and fat and that was it. Reducing these things will make you lose weight temporarily. But as soon as you start eating normally again, well, we know how that works. Any of us who have battled the bulge just a little bit understand completely how that works. In short, most, if not all, commercial weight loss plans are designed for failure. They want you dependent on them. So you keep coming back when you gain the weight back. Well, guess what? Every form of self-help is just like that. And Joel Osteen's messaging taps into every conceivable avenue of self-help. Productivity, 
time management, finances, relationships, and the running theme through all of it is that you're not good enough. You need some kind of anchor that will keep your life on course in these areas. And whether it's televangelists or secular self-help gurus, the goal is the same. Hook you, reel you in, and keep you dependent. In the case of Joel Osteen, it's dependence on God. And by proxy, him. Because he's the representative. He's the one bringing the messaging. So your dependency on this fictional God translates to the bringer of the messaging. See just how ugly and nefarious and artfully deceptive it all is. Mm. It's artfully deceptive. Now, when I think about some of the pioneers of self-help, when I think about guys like Dale Carnegie and Norman Vincent Peale, I'm not sure that their motivations were anywhere near as nefarious as this. They pioneered the niche, but the simple actually helpful messaging in how to win friends and influence people and the power of positive thinking have become hopelessly weaponized over time. Now it's not really about self-improvement. It's about self-deprecation and how to find relief from it. And for the record, I blame Peel for most of the secret hysteria. And I do think it has played a big role in word faith messaging as well. The law of attraction, which is what the secret is, plays heavily into everything they do. And it's yet another example of how self-help crosses spiritual lines. The secret has both religious and secular appeal. And to me, it's a roided up version of every other avenue of self-help out there with the added delusion that you literally need nothing but a thought or the will to make things happen to actually make them happen. This, in my opinion, is very dangerous thinking. But before factoring in what televangelists in this niche pull down, and Osteen isn't the only one, Creflo Dollar, for example, is a lot like him. 2016 statistics show that the self-help industry was good for nearly $10 billion in revenue that year. The simple fact of the matter is that very few people out there are happy with the person they are. And there's a reason for that. And you know what that reason is? We're told not to be. And that kind of brings the conversation full circle because people like Joel Osteen are predators and they target people who are already conditioned to be dissatisfied with themselves, with their lives, with their jobs, with their relationships, you name it. So here's my take on why it works so well. Why do self-help and televangelism work so well together? To me, at the end of the day, even the most secular of Joel Osteen's messaging comes back around to the gospel. You need something to save you, basically from yourself. So the, there's the whole aspect of the need for salvation. Both of these things also spring from the premise that something is wrong with you. Mm. When it comes to the gospel, it's this little persnickety problem of original sin that Jesus has to deal with. In self-help terms, it can be anything that God now needs to intervene on in your life. Both have books and other materials that are supposed to help you deal with whatever perceived problems you're facing. So for the average evangelical, they're going to turn to the Bible every single time. But for the ones who follow people like Joel Osteen, I dare say that some of them put way more stock in the things that he has to say than anything the Bible has to say. So evidence in the fact that people buy those books and read them, and most never pick up their Bibles between church services. Both usually revolve around one central authority figure or guru. There are self-help gurus out there that are making money hand over fist, basically doing nothing for people. 
just spouting a lot of platitudes yeah. and selling it in book form for 20 bucks and having whatever other resources that they have available. Um, let's not even talk about the ones that have live seminars, weekends, things that cost literally thousands of dollars for you yeah. to participate in. And some people who just flat out don't have the money taking out loans, mortgaging their homes to be able to continue following some of these people. And they do it with self-help gurus. And we talked about how they also do it with televangelists. It's a thing that happens. And lastly, both of them are designed to keep you dependent on the central figure. So you're dependent on your self-help guru. You sit there waiting for their next book to come out or the next episode of their TV show or whatever it is. You sit there with bated breath waiting to hear what Joel Osteen is going to have to say next, but he does an artful job of deferring everything to God too. So who is the real central figure there? He wants to tell you that it's God, but at the end of the day, these are just like with anything else that people claim to speak for God over. They're all his own opinions. So the central figure here is not God. It's Joel Osteen. And whether people want to admit it or not, they know. Yeah. They absolutely know. So to put a little bit of a cap on the comments that I've made about this, I want to talk just for a few minutes in closing about things that actually lead to self-improvement. And, you know, I just want to make it perfectly clear. You don't need to invest money in self-help books. The secret is a crock of shit. And the messaging that you're getting from televangelists like Joel Osteen, even if they're a little bit more secular, even if they edge a little bit more past the real hardline gospel messaging that you hear with some of the more traditional ones, none of what they have to say is ever going to get you where you want to be in life. There's nothing that these people have to say that is going to help you live the abundant life that they tell you that you should be living. And I'm not going to tell you that doing these things will give you an abundant life, but I will say that they'll give you a better perspective on where you should be looking for your help and how you should be looking at yourself. So these are the things that I brainstormed that actually lead to real honest to goodness self-improvement. First, acknowledging that there are things to like about ourselves. And that's a difficult one for a lot of people. You know, there are days when I look in that mirror and don't like what I see. There are days when I come home from work feeling a little bit defeated because I don't always feel like I get the respect that I deserve for the work that I do. And that's true of a lot of people. You know, that's not just me being a narcissistic asshole. Most people don't feel like they're adequately acknowledged for what they accomplish. A lot of people are in that kind of situation. Figuring out things to like about you is an important thing. I know that it kind of steers it back into the realm of self-help, but it's important that we start seeing ourselves that way and not in terms that some self-help guru tells us that we should see, just in terms of what we know about us. And in an honest and unbiased way, looking at our strengths and saying, you know what, I'm good at this. And I like the fact that I am good at this, that I have these people in my life, that I am typically and generally a good person, and that I have these talents and abilities or whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you find about you that you can say, I like, start zeroing in on those things. 
because people like Joel Osteen and anyone who tries to lure you into evangelical Christianity does not want you to like yourself. They want you to see yourself as something flawed and broken and dirty and in need of fixing. Well, you know what? Maybe there are things in your life that need fixing, but they don't have the answers. Acknowledging our limits, shortcomings, and weaknesses is also important because we want to set goals for ourselves that are reachable and attainable, and we want to be able to actually accomplish things, not just feel like we've accomplished things, but actually accomplish things. And that involves being honest with ourselves and knowing where our limits are. It's a very important part of the equation also. Taking a proactive role in our overall happiness is also a big part of it. And I think that a big part of that has to do with a couple of things. Whether or not your mental health is in a place where it needs to be for you to experience happiness and also what the other influencers are in your life that are telling you that you're not happy. Because if it's your pastor leading you to believe that you're not happy, guess what? There's an ulterior motive for that. And you need to be aware of it. The suggestion by any minister, televangelist, or whatever, that your happiness is contingent on anything external is bullshit. And you need to understand that also. We need to start taking a proactive role in our health and well-being. That's both physical and mental. We need to start making improvements for ourselves, not to gain anyone else's approval. The whole idea of self-help and self-improvement is that it improves ourselves. We don't get into making changes in our life to make other people happy. You're not responsible for other people's happiness. Just don't be a source of stress, okay? It's impossible for us to make someone else happy. They have to be happy with who they are. They have to be happy being in a relationship with us. There are other factors, but we cannot make someone else happy. Get that thought out of your head. It's going to drive you crazy trying. I've been the one who has tried. And yes, it drove me crazy <laughs> more than once. You know, let's um, go back and listen to our episode on savior complexes. Mm. You'll learn a little bit more about that. But we have to take a proactive role in our happiness. And I think you'll find that when you start becoming a little bit more content with who you are, what you look like, what your life looks like, even if there are struggles, even if you're not precisely where you want to be in life right now, if you can figure out a way to be happy with the fact that you are at least trying to get where you're going, then I think it makes a big difference. We need to stop looking at ourselves in terms of good or bad, saved or unsaved, or anything in between. People are neither good nor bad. We rarely make decisions based on what's right. We are far more concerned with what's convenient at that moment. Want to improve that part of you? Start paying more attention to right and less to convenient. It's more difficult, but oh, the character that it helps to build. Limit your exposure to self-help anything, okay? Mm. None of it is going to help you. It's all designed to keep you dependent on the person delivering the information and whatever else it is that they're selling you. Limit time spent on social media. I can't think of a better avenue of self-improvement than just getting off the computer once in a while. Distance yourself from that a little bit. I'm not saying delete your Facebook account. I'm saying don't spend six hours a day on Facebook. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
Don't rely on social media for all of your social interactions with other humans because you get a very, very skewed picture of who other people are in social media. They only show you what they want you to see. Understand that none of your perceived flaws are unique and that flaws aren't typically negatives. This applies to all areas of life, mind, and body. And along those lines, get into therapy if you need it. Take your meds if they're prescribed. Do what you need to do to get certain parts of you under wraps if that is what needs to happen. Next, this is a big one. This is a big one. Make time for you. Make a space that's reserved just for you to experience things, think thoughts, or do stuff without having to think about other people just for a little while. Maybe not every day. Maybe you can't afford to do this every day. But sometimes, and I would say at least once a week or so, and equally important, I think, stop comparing yourself to other people. Because the more you do that, the more perceived flaws you're going to uncover. And you don't need that. You don't need to be looking at someone else and saying, I need to be more like that. No, you need to be you and you need to be okay with being you and you need to be okay with being different from other people, having different opinions, having a slightly different personality, because you know what? Our self-perceptions are always going to be way different than other people's perceptions. So some of the stuff that you think is a little bit weird about you, you know what? I'll bet you any amount of money that most people out there never even notice these things. We notice them because it's us. But someone on the outside looking in who can't get inside our brains isn't seeing things the same way. You're not as strange as you think. Mm. I'm sorry if some yeah. of you might think that that's a little bit of, a, of an insult. You want to be strange? Oh, please, be strange. Be as strange as you fucking want. But don't think that those strange things about you are what define you, the quality of you as a person. Stop letting other people dictate what your body should look like, okay? This one is very, very important because it's one of the main things that these self-help predators will zero in on. And it's very problematic. And there are people out there who have built empires for themselves out of people's insecurity about their bodies and how they look. You know, if you're going to lose weight, lose it for you. Don't lose it so that you can make your spouse happy or so that you can find better people to date or anything along those lines. It has to be for you and it has to be for good reasons and it has to be when you're ready. But if you're not ready to go on a 17-month low-carb, no-sugar-no-sweet-anything diet like I did to lose that weight, then don't just now. At this point in your life, you need to figure out a way to be happy with who you are, what you look like. And if there are legit criticisms, because yeah, obesity is in fact unhealthy and there's just no two ways about it, but you can't enter into something like weight loss because it's unhealthy. You have to enter into it because you're tired of being fat. And that was where I got, I got tired of being fat and decided that I didn't want that for me anymore. And that was when the changes started happening. Also with the anger management part of it, I just simply decided that I was tired of being angry all the time. And when those things happened, that's when the changes started. Next, learn something new. Take a class, take up a hobby, start studying something that you wish you'd applied yourself more to in school. There were a few of those for me. 
read some of those books that your ELA teacher assigned that you never bothered to read because who likes being told to read anything? Some of those books were pretty damn good. I've gone back and read a few of them. Mm -hmm. A couple of these books that I hadn't read, that I would, should, probably should have read in high school and never actually had the, the interest in actually picking up. So I learned what I needed to to pass the test, and that was it, um, because we always discussed them in class. So I knew what the books were about, but as an adult, there were several of them that it's like, you know, maybe I should check this out, and I have never been disappointed. And along those lines, keep in mind that an active brain is a healthy brain. Use it. Exercise it. Feed it good thoughts. Teach it new things. Never look at learning as something with a beginning and an end. You didn't stop learning when you stopped going to school. And I personally hope to keep learning right up to the very end. Don't be obsessed with your bucket list, but do try to cross a few things off of it along the way. And finally, I'm going to close out this episode with this. A little bit of counter-messaging to Joel Osteen here. Never, ever, ever let someone else do your thinking for you not even the spider. I have some good ideas and I give some good advice, but don't even take my words at face value. Make changes because they're wanted and necessary, not because a podcaster told you to. And by reasonable application, also not because a self-help book or a charming televangelist <laughs> told you to. This is your life. You know you. No stranger will ever be able to give you better advice or steer you in better directions than you. That said, you have to be prepared to listen and act. It isn't easy, but if you get committed to that, it'll get you just that much closer to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.